Well, good morning. It's wonderful to see all of you again. Uh, the Lord has given us yet again a week to be together, to pray together, to worship together, and to submit together to His Word. Uh, we are grateful. Uh, if you haven't already, please join me in your Bibles in Galatians chapter 5. We'll pick up at verse 13 this morning. We have... Uh, Quite a bit more than usual this morning, we have some things we need to remind ourselves of and to think through together before we get to our first verse. So it may be a little bit uh, different of a, of a pattern for us this morning. Uh, if you were here with us last week, you, you got to see Paul have quite the glare on his face as he turned his attention in the text last week to the false teachers who were troubling the Galatians. Uh, he did not spare them or his hearers of the intensity that he felt about these matters. Uh, you may be happy to know that this week he is now returning his attention onto his brothers and sisters that he's writing to in Christ. Uh, and as, as he begins to unpack uh, for them a particular concept, it's a concept that he has introduced already at this point, but not got into great detail in. It's the idea of freedom. Freedom is the word, the operative word for our passage this morning. But what is freedom? That's the kind of question that can be hard to just answer without a particular context in place. But it is a very important question to ask uh, as we're coming to our passage this morning. We have to ask it keeping in mind what Paul has said thus far in his letter. The reason that this can be difficult is because the word freedom brings to mind, rightly, so many different things. It's a word that's used in many different contexts. Uh, and so we have to ask, what has Paul been saying leading up to this? Uh, that's the reason why I'd like us to start this morning by reviewing a bit of what we have heard from Paul uh, and thinking also about the notion of freedom itself and the notion of freedom in the book of Galatians. Uh, we will then be ready to hear Paul's statements that he makes about uh, freedom in these verses. And he's going to be telling us three things about freedom in these three verses. Uh, let's start with this. When you hear Paul here in just a moment as we read, when you hear him speak of freedom, you need to be thinking about redemption from bondage. And in particular, in Galatians, redemption from bondage to the elementary principles of the world. This is what Paul has been dealing with. In other words, you need to remember what we saw when we were in Galatians 4, verses 1 to 20. That was a little bit of time ago at this point. But it was in those early verses of chapter 4 that he brought up the concepts of bondage or slavery and the concept of redemption from that bondage. What we saw back then is that by elementary principles, remember he says there, you were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Uh, we saw that he was referring to, if you will, the old world, the present evil age that he spoke about back in Galatians 1, verse 4. So he talked in the early parts of chapter 4 about Gentiles, uh, the whole unbelieving world. And he said of them that they had long been in bondage to these elementary principles. He depicted it in terms of their pagan idolatry, in Galatians 4, verses 8 and 9. But he didn't stop there. He included the Jews as well. And he said that even the Mosaic law, 
as useful of an instrument as that had been for preserving the physical line of Abraham, uh, it had not been a thing of the age to come. That is to say, it had not been a vessel through which the Spirit was given, through which salvation had come, so that in Galatians 4.5, the Jews had needed to be redeemed from under it in order to receive the adoption as sons of God. All of that is upstream from what Paul's going to say to us this morning. And he picked this idea back up at the start of our present chapter. Look at chapter 5, verse 1, just for a moment. Remember what he says there. He brings back up now this idea of freedom, and he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And you remember there we noticed that he's urging them away from what the Judaizers are pressuring them toward, which is to submit to the Mosaic law. And he's calling it there a return to a yoke of slavery. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to this. He proceeded from there to urge them in verse 4 not to seek justification by the law. If you've been with us in the study, maybe this is reminding you of where we have come to get to our, our passage this morning. So this is, here's where this leaves us then. Paul's talking in our text here in verses 13 to 15 about freedom. He's in particular talking about freedom from the Mosaic law. And he needs to talk about that because as we've seen, the Galatians are being pressured to put themselves under that law. You remember Galatians 4.21, he said of them, you who desire to be under the law. This is the problem that he's addressing. This is helpful context as we come to some of these statements he makes about freedom. So let's pause at this point and read the passage aloud. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll read just verses 13 to 15. Paul continues in this way. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Paul begins this morning with these words. He says, you were called to freedom, brothers. And it would be proper, in light of what we've just very quickly recapped, we've, that, that was a whole lot to recap in just a few minutes there. Uh, but in light of that, it would be proper to insert here the idea of bondage. You were called to freedom from bondage. You are now Christian brothers and sisters that he's writing to. You are now citizens of the age to come. Yes, living out your lives in this present evil age, but living those lives through the power of the age that is to come. That is, as he's going to put it here shortly, you're living out your lives now by the power of the Holy Spirit. So big picture, this is a freedom from bondage to a dead and dying world. But in terms of particulars and what Paul has been saying, it's freedom from the Mosaic law. 
Now this morning, what Paul's going to do so wisely is he is going to anticipate and respond to the reactions, the potentially misunderstanding reactions that come up in the hearts of those that are paying attention to him. He is, he is a fantastic thinker and writer, and so as he's done in so many other places here, he knows the kinds of questions that may be arising in our hearts. Maybe it's arising in your heart now. Freedom from the Mosaic law. What do you mean freedom from this law that God gave that is a good thing? What kind of a life? What does life look like that is lived free of the law in this sense? Are we talking about lawless living? Is that what you're talking about, Paul? Are we antinomians now? This is what Paul's going to deal with. He does this sort of thing so often in his letters. He does it especially in the book of Romans in several places. In Romans 3, he spent some time talking about how the Jews had many advantages, God-given advantages to them. And then in verse 9, he asks, what then? Are we better than they? I mean, he knows the kinds of questions that will come up, and he brings them right up, and he deals with them. Romans chapter 9, just after he has explained the unconditional election of Jacob over Esau, and he goes out of his way there, doesn't he? Before either one of them had done anything good or bad, before they were born so that God's purposes according to election would stand, God said, the older will serve the younger. Jacob I've loved, Esau I have hated. He's made this, this pretty amazing, profound argument, and he knows what those who are paying attention are going to be thinking next. And so guess what he says in verse 14? What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? That sounds unfair. Before they were born, he, that sounds unfair. He brings it up and he deals with it in the very next paragraph. He does it again a few verses later in verse 19. He declared that God has mercy on whom he desires and hardens whom he desires. And then he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? This is Paul's pattern. When he knows that something he has said will produce a confusion or a question, he doesn't shy away. He raises it, and he helps us through it. Now, one of the reasons that that method is so helpful to us is that it helps us to gauge whether we are hearing Paul rightly or not, doesn't it? If I've been reading his letter, and this is the objection or the question that's coming up in my mind, the one that he raises, well, then I know I'm on the right track. I know I'm hearing him correctly. That's very helpful to us. It's the same way here in our passage in Galatians. When we hear about the freedom that Paul is describing, I mean, he's told us in general terms about this freedom in verse 1, but what he's going to do this morning is he's going to explain that freedom in a way that guards us against misunderstanding. Verse 13, he says uh, very plainly that freedom is a way to describe God's goal for his children. He says, you were called to freedom, brothers. I think it's important for us to, to understand, Paul is not there describing freedom as the destination that we've been called to. He's describing freedom as the purpose of our calling. I think other translations help us with this. The Holman Christian Bible, the NIV, both translate it a little differently. They say, you were called to be free. You were called 
uh, for the purpose of freedom. And that is, even grammatically, in the way he puts it, it's inescapable. He's talking in terms of purpose. You were called for the purpose of freedom, brothers. So why did God call us by this gospel unto salvation? Well, here's one way to answer that. It's because he desired this freedom for us. Our Father called us so that we could escape bondage and find freedom. The reality is the freedom that we live in in Christ is truly wonderful indeed, isn't it? It is a real and present danger, and maybe especially in our times today. There are always, every time has a unique, has unique um, challenges or temptations. It may be true that in our day today, we are especially prone to diminish or underappreciate the blessing of Christian liberty that God has given us in Christ, in the freedom that he calls us to. Now you go into the Old Testament and you see God's people there having comprehensive restrictions on them, didn't they? I mean, their behavior, their dress, their diet, the structure of their week. Uh, they had lists of restrictions that caused their lives to look very different than the lives of God's people now. We, we, don't have, we don't live according to long lists of restrictions in that same way that they did. doesn't mean we have no commands or restrictions. Of course we do. But there's a very different picture that we're given. You remember Galatians 4.25 spoke of present Jerusalem as being in slavery with her children. But peek back for just a moment at chapter 2, verse 4. Paul, early on here, describes the Judaizing element that's come in in, the, in this way. He says, uh, false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. What is it that these men were watching for here who have slipped in to spy out their freedom so that they might bring them into slavery? What are they watching for? It seems clear what they're doing is they're watching to see what the Galatians are doing or not doing, and then to proceed to try forcing the Mosaic law onto them, which Paul describes as bringing them into slavery. We've seen in the last couple of weeks that especially shows up in the matter of circumcision, receiving the rite of circumcision, which was required by the Mosaic law. But Christians' lives are not characterized thus by this sort of law-keeping, and that's according to God's good pleasure. This is why Paul has spoken in terms of the underage child growing up and becoming an adult back in chapter 4. We understand this sort of thing with our own children. The more that our children are, the younger they are, the more they are underage. Um, isn't it true the longer the list of restrictions that they have on their lives? But as they age, uh, parents rejoice as we see our children slowly getting older and we can begin to remove some of the restrictions uh, as they become ready for that. Don't we experience that? It's not because those were bad restrictions. It's because they were necessary and they're now increasingly unnecessary. Those sorts of, of legal restrictions that we would put on them. We even understand this with our pets. Uh, I was thinking of our of our pet. We, we have uh, become a dog family as of December, so we have a dog at home. 
We got her as she's about three years old. She's very sweet. She is not the best dog in terms of training. And the result is that her movements are very restricted in ways that they might not otherwise have to be. And she is sad about that. She is really good at the dog sad face. And I feel sad for her. I wish for a maturity for her that would allow me to just let her off that leash, you know, entirely, to really ease up her, her flow of her freedom of movement. But it's just not there. Now, let's stick with that dog analogy for just a moment. Let's say that I let her off the leash. A day comes that, that we're on a walk and I let her off that leash, right? I can't imagine that day, but you don't know the dog, so you can imagine that day. What would be... What would be the intent, in my mind, as her owner, in letting her off that leash, what would be the intent for that freedom? Well, it would be for her pleasure as she walks with me and obeys me. In that obeying of me, I mean, she would be taken to the park. She would have roaming privileges. We could play fetch out there and she could run and be trusted to bring something back. She might even be let to to interact with other dogs, which would be the equivalent of dog heaven for her because she's now trustworthy. All of this would be for her and my intent would be for her pleasure as she obeys me and as she walks with me. My intent would certainly not be to give that freedom for her to have some sort of an autonomous freedom from me in the enjoyment of which she runs out in front of cars or destroys my neighbor's property or gets lost and can't get home. In other words, this is what we see. Even the word freedom depends upon context. It depends upon the context that it is granted in and the purpose that it's granted for. We understand that in our own realms and situations. What Paul tells us in verse 13 is that there is divine purpose behind our freedom in Christ. And that then brings up the million dollar question for us this morning, the question that verse 13 will answer, which is, what is this freedom and what is God's purpose behind this freedom? So let's begin to see now what it is that that we learn about God's intent and the, and the freedom that we have been given by being called in the name of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Each of these verses will answer a question. So verse 13, here's the question that it answers. What is this freedom? And he tells us two things about it. One thing he tells us is it's a freedom that can be misused. It's a freedom that can be misused. You were called to freedom, brothers. Look what he says next. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Right now we're focusing on that prohibition. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Peter is going to say something very similar to that in 1 Peter 2.16. He says, listen to this, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. It's a freedom we've been called to. It can be misused. But the very fact that it can be misused means that there is an intent, a purpose behind it. And we're to follow in that intent. 
Paul has a similar correction that he gives to the Corinthians, and I would like you to look at these with me. They're both in 1 Corinthians. So turn there and just keep your finger in each of them. We'll just flip back and forth real quickly. The first one is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. But then also just keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 10, 23. He does this, in a sense, the same thing in both of these places. He quotes the Corinthians back to them. So he's heard from them. This is something that they are saying. They're saying this, all things are lawful for me. Now, I think clearly what's happening is he's taught them about freedom in Christ. But as time has gone on, they've twisted this idea. They have misunderstood or begun to misapply this. So he quotes to them what they're saying, which is, all things are lawful for me. And then he's showing them how they need to adjust their application of this or how they've misunderstood. Right? So first is chapter 6, verse 12. Look at what he does here. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be enslaved by anything. See those two but statements he gives there? There's a third one he adds, if you turn over to the chapter 10, verse 23. Does the same thing here, but he adds a third. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. We've heard that already. All things are lawful for me, but not all things build up. Now, you can hear in both of these chapters the sort of wrong thinking about freedom that was spreading throughout the Corinthian church, it would seem. If I am permitted to do it, if I'm free to do it, then that's all that matters. I'll do it if I want to do it, and I'll want to do it based on whether it satisfies my own natural desires. That's now the criteria of my decision-making. It doesn't matter how I do it. It doesn't matter if I'm... If it's lawful, then I'll do it, and I'll then be ruled and led by the natural desires that I have. This becomes the criteria, it seems, for the Corinthians. And Paul's correction, notice, isn't it, it, it's not that this or that is necessarily unlawful. It may be that the things they're pursuing were, in fact, unlawful to them. But that's not what he says. His correction isn't as to whether they're lawful or not. His correction is that, These things prove, number one, unhelpful. Number two, not to build others up. And number three, they prove to actually be coming to enslave the person who's doing these things. And in our text in Galatians 5.13, we find the first description of this freedom. That is that God didn't grant it for us to be used as an opportunity for the flesh. The flesh sets as its goal the satisfaction of our earthly, natural desires. But notice what Paul says, God intends us to prioritize with our freedom. This is the second part of verse 13. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Paul says that the life of the age to come, which we now live in by the power of the Spirit, which is characterized by freedom, is a freedom understood in the context of an others-oriented life. My freedom is not, first and foremost, for my own satisfaction and pleasure. Rather, my freedom is for the love and service of God's people. Do not use it as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather, 
through love, serve one another. And it's important for you to understand, he is quite specific here. He doesn't say, uh, through love, serve others in a generic sense. Of course, there's something true about that. But that's not what he says here. He specifically says, brothers, through love, serve each other. And that's going to help us to see when we get further on in Galatians, and he again emphasizes the priority of love demonstrated in the context of the body of Christ. There is something the world needs to see uniquely as God's people give God's love to one another, providing for, serving one another. There is something of a display there that is unique. The emphasis here on what our freedom in Christ is intended for shines light on some other things that Paul says as well. You may remember this. This is fairly well known. Remember what he says in Philippians 2. I'll just read this to you, verses 3 and 4. He said there, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The divine purpose behind this life of freedom that we enjoy in Christ is that it will be used not to focus on my interests, my needs, my wants, but rather that in my freedom in Christ, I would jump and run and go to and fro in that freedom, here it is, in loving service of my Christian family. And brothers and sisters, this is intensely practical for us this morning. You think about what's happening here on on our weekly Sunday morning gatherings. When we come and we gather together, do we receive from this? From this uh, couple of hours that we're together? Is that something in which each of us individually receive as a result? Well, the answer is yes, greatly. Right? There are many ways that we receive. I come, I'm greeted, I'm, I'm encouraged that by the reminder that there are people who know me and who care about me. Um, I, my needs are met in, in many ways. I'm, I, even as I worship the Lord in song and in prayer, uh, I myself, my soul is fed in the process. I am strengthened and encouraged. Uh, as I receive from the teaching ministry of the church, in, in, whether that be Sunday school or with the children or from the preached word, uh, I'm growing in knowledge and wisdom of God's word. We receive in many ways as we gather together. It sort of begs the question, in all the times that I've gathered with God's people in the month of May, what exactly has happened? I take those cumulatively and hold them up and I look at them. What has happened in that time? Have I received and received and received? Is that what has happened in the month of May? What has anyone else received based on the fact that I have been among them? Now, I have, I have no doubt as we think about that sort of a question, what is my, uh, my place in God's people on a weekly basis? What has that been for others and not only for myself? I think that as, as we consider that individually, there ought to be two different reactions happening in this room right now to a question like that. For some, thinking about just the month of May in those terms should be an encouraging exercise. 
because it gives you the chance to reflect on how, wow, yeah, God is indeed using me and my efforts to bless and serve other people. As you think about that question and those thoughts come to your mind, those are things that are worthy of uh, praise to God. They should be an encouragement to you. I have no doubt as well that there, are, there also should be, in the experience of this kind of question, some conviction happening. In any room of God's people gathered together, when we think like this, conviction should be happening. And you can see why that would be, right? We, we understand. We look around the room. We're sitting in a room full of needs that need meeting. There are lonely people in this room that crave and desire and are praying for fellowship, deeper fellowship with brothers and sisters. There are struggling people who need counsel or advice. Uh, There are blessed people who need someone to share their joy with. Uh, Even the church as an institution has needs, right? There are volunteer needs in several directions in order that the work of the church can actually happen. All of these needs are present as God's people gather together. It's why he has equipped each of his children with particular spiritual giftings so that they might serve the body. What do you know? That this is indeed where Paul is about to go in the book of Galatians, isn't it? And so for some, it's very possible that this might be a moment of gracious conviction from God's Spirit. If your interactions with with your church can only be described with the word consumer, what God would say to you this morning by means of Galatians 5.13 is this. Brother, sister, or if if I'm quoting the Lord speaking to you, child of mine, Your freedom was given to you for the purpose of lovingly serving one another. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Let me just encourage you as we move on from this. Don't brush that thought off. If the Lord brings conviction, it is a gracious and kind thing. Don't brush those thoughts off. Let the Lord work in you through his word. This morning. So verse 13, what was the divine intent for the freedom he's given us? Well, it can be used as an opportunity for the flesh, but that would be a misuse because its intent was to be used for the service of one another. Now in verse 14, we get another question. Here's the question that verse 14 answers. How does this freedom relate to God's law? Look at verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Does this freedom that we're talking about, that Paul's been describing, does this freedom contradict the Mosaic law? Paul's answer here is far from it. Does it contradict the Mosaic law? This goal for the freedom we have in Christ in orientation towards others instead of satisfying our own immediate desires This was the law's aim from the beginning. The whole law is fulfilled in one saying. And then he quotes Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said several things to this effect in his earthly ministry. Matthew 7, 12, he said, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. 
He was asked in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Listen to his answer. And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. If walking by the Spirit is a life in which I live out of love of those God has placed around me, and if this was the life that the whole law was holding out as worthy and pleasing to God, then the divine intent in the law finds fulfillment as I walk by the Spirit. Now, this is how we can say two things together that can sound like they are a contradiction. We can say, on the one hand, that the authority of the entire Mosaic Covenant administration is over, and yet not at all be saying that the things taught by that covenant are now rejected. Take, for example, the Ten Commandments. This is, this is spoken of in the Old Testament as the summation of the Mosaic Law. Are we saying, when we say that first thing, that the authority of the Mosaic Covenant administration is over? Are we saying that the things of the Ten Commandments, the things taught of the Ten Commandments, are now rejected? Oh, by no means. Uh, to return from an example that I mentioned earlier, think of, not the dog now, but think of the children. Think of when I grew up and I left my parents' house. There was a definite ending of a certain authority relationship there. Wasn't there? I've now gone out on my own. Uh, I'm not under my, my parents' roof anymore. I am beginning my own family, if you will. I still need to honor my parents, but our relationship has changed. And a kind of authority that had rightly been there wasn't there anymore, right? And get this, they were actually happy about that. They were happy about that because that was part of the goal all along, wasn't it? For me to grow up, to mature, to become an adult, and then to step out from under their authority, which had been temporary as I grew. Now, if I turn 30 years old, I'm, not, I'm older than 30, hypothetically here. If I turn 30 and, I'm, and I ask their permission to go over to a friend's house to celebrate, something is profoundly wrong in that situation, isn't it? There's something, there's something messed up going on in the relationship there. Because that authority is no longer fitting or appropriate. Now, what, what did that mean about the rules that they had given me? Did that mean when I left their house that I took all the things that my parents had ever told me, all the things they had ever commanded me to live by, and tossed them into the trash can? Is that what it meant for me to mature and to leave their authority? Did the wisdom that they taught me while I was under their authority stop being wisdom when I left their authority? Of course it didn't. Of course it didn't. What changed was my relationship to them and my decision-making process as to how to live. Now my thought isn't, first and foremost, my dad doesn't want me to do this. Now, first and foremost, the thought is, I don't want to do this because it is not right before God. The thought process has changed, not the rightness of the command. When God commanded in Deuteronomy 22.8, 
to build a parapet wall around the roof of your house so that your dinner party guests, they used to eat dinner on their roofs, so that your dinner party guests didn't fall off and break their necks. And that was an explicit commandment to the Jewish people. And it was sin to disobey. So now you build a house and don't build a parapet, you have violated building code now, right? Uh, but what aim does that law have in training God's people in the Old Testament? Does it not have the aim of teaching you to love your neighbor? What aim does it still have today? To teach us to love our neighbor. It's the same. Verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's, amazing, it's profound to me. It's something as complicated as the, the, the subject we're trying to wrestle with here, that he could... Uh, Set, be satisfied to sum up his point to them in that one statement in verse 14. It really is a mouthful of a statement that we could chew on for a long time in this verse. But what we've heard so far is this. We've heard, number one, what this freedom is. We've heard, number two, how this freedom relates to God's law that he had given through Moses. The third question that he's going to answer here in verse 15 is essentially this. What happens if I use my freedom, like verse 13 said, not to use it. What happens if I don't listen and I live in my freedom like I've been told I must not? Or we could put it this way. In verse, thir- verse 15, what we learn is what will happen to those who seek to define freedom like our society is currently defining it. And that's what we're going to see in verse 15. Listen to what he says. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Our next stop in Galatians are the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And if you're like me, you'll be amazed now that we've seen what we've seen through Galatians and the emphasis that Paul is placing on the way we love and serve one another. Then you go to those lists. You'll be amazed at the extent to which those lists portray one sort of posture towards others compared to another sort of posture towards others. If I do what verse 13 said not to do, if I use my freedom to serve my own flesh, what will be the result? And to portray the answer, Paul enters into the animal world. That's why I think it's especially fitting to have used the example of my dog before, because Paul goes into the animal world here in verse 15. Listen to what one commentator, F.F. Bruce, says this. I thought this was was well said. Uh, He's talking here about the emphasis that Paul chooses to make here in Galatians, as he's warning them, that's different from other letters that he wrote. Interpersonal strife, he says this, interpersonal strife is the only work of the flesh against which Paul specifically warns the Galatians. There is no allusion in this letter, for example, to the sexual irregularities against which he puts the Thessalonians on their guard in 1 Thessalonians 4. Only to interpersonal strife. But the vice against which he warns, excuse me, but the, the vice against which he does warn the Galatians here is serious enough. If not checked, It could lead to the disintegration of their fellowship and the disappearance of the churches of Galatia. 
The language which Paul uses suggests a pack of wild animals preying on one another. If you keep on biting one another and tearing one another to pieces, take care lest you be annihilated by one another. It's a vivid picture that Paul is giving us here in verse 15 as he's causing us to think about the ravenous nature of wild animals. They're creatures who are utterly ruled by their own passions, aren't they? Living purely by instinct. It's it's kind of ironic if you think about it, because they can be sometimes held up as the pinnacle of freedom. Who tells the wolf what to do, where to go? And yet it's an animal entirely ruled by his own desires and instincts. They cannot curb their appetites for the sake of the approval of an authority figure. Um, I've seen before, have you seen in, in movies uh, I, I think I've seen this more than once, uh, depicting someone. Usually it's a man uh, who has a desk job, and he finally gets away from his desk job, and he goes out into the wild. What does he do to picture his freedom? Doesn't he find a cliff somewhere or a hill and go up to it and howl like a wolf? Right? It's an expression of his freedom at last that he feels. Well, again, compare that wolf to a well-trained, domesticated dog and ask yourself which one of them is more free in a meaningful sense. The wolf is enslaved to its passions. The wolf must live in fear all of its life. The wolf lives out its life in the chaos of the world. You try to take that image of autonomous freedom into the human world, I mean... Metaphors break down, but think of that equivalent in the human world, especially if we think of it in terms of the image-bearing world, image-of-God-bearing world. What you quickly find is that 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 picture of freedom is no picture of freedom at all, is it? That is the opposite of freedom. It's a freedom to be enslaved by sin and Satan, the worst of taskmasters. And just like the domesticated pets that we have, we are forced to understand that for a creature, as long as we're talking about the creaturely world, any true freedom must entail submission of some sort. It has to. Let me read a few passages to you here, and I'm reading these to help us understand why it's so proper that Paul would go to the image of wild animals in verse 15. The alternative to a dog-eat-dog world is a domestication of some sort, isn't it? What I mean is it's a submission to authority that can lead to the only true freedom that there is for a creature. These are three passages. First is 1 Corinthians 7.22. These are not long. Listen to what he does here with freedom and slavery. For he who was called in the Lord... As a slave, he's talking about actual slaves in that time, owned by another, and now they've become a believer. He who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. Romans 6, 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, listen to this, 
and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Or just a couple verses down in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. There's a type of freedom that wild animals have. If that's what you want, then enjoy the world of chaos that you must live in. And we get a little foreshadowing of what it looks like in verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. True freedom, the freedom that we have been called to by our Heavenly Father, entails a willing submission to Him and to His purposes, and therefore, get this, a willing submission to one another within His body. And guess what? Back in verse 13, when He said, through love serve one another, you need to know He had two words at His disposal for the word serve that He had to pick from. There's diakoneo, you hear the word deacon there? doing acts of service, uh, in a sense, doing a favor for someone, do, serve, uh, seeing a need and saying, I'll, just, I'll go and meet that need. There's diakoneo, and then there's doulao. Do you hear doulos in there? It's a word for slave. Doulao means to serve in the sense of being submitted to one another. So serving one another because their interests are more significant than yours. I wonder which one he used here in verse 13. What would be your guess? If you guessed the second one, you're exactly right. Through love, do lao one another. Submit yourselves to one another, serving one another because of the conviction you have that they are more significant than you. You care for their interests above your own. This is the uh, kingdom mentality that he calls us to here. We live lives of submission to God and therefore lives of submission to one another as his people. And there, and only there, my friends, do we enjoy the freedom that belongs exclusively to believers. So I want to end this morning with a simple question, and it's really more of a charge, I suppose, based upon what God has called to our attention in his word here this morning. The charge is this. Take stock of yourself as to the state of things. I'm thinking, we've delved into matters of priority, matters of time, matters of um, matters that are tied intimately to our behaviors. Right? Take stock. How are things going for you right now? In your thought line. The world says some things that we simply cannot follow, doesn't it? The world says, you have to learn how to love yourself before you can love others. So focus on yourself. God's word says, you already love yourself. Love the Lord your God. And you'll know you do when you're pouring out your life for the family of God around you. The world says you're not living an authentic life until you're standing up for yourself, for your rights, for your goals, for your wants. Be assertive is the highest virtue of the day. Stand up for yourself. 
God's word says, die to yourself. Die to yourself. Who is presently occupying the throne in your life? And listen, just because you're a believer here this morning doesn't mean that the answer to that question is automatically the Lord Jesus Christ at this moment in your life. As believers, we constantly are wrestling in a kingdom battle with the Lord of all creation, seeking at times to want to put him off the throne and to climb back on. And repentance is required. Don't assume that just because you know the Lord as a, in a saving way that the answer to that right now must be the Lord Jesus Christ. It may be that you're in a season where you have crept back up onto that throne or at least have, have hidden the desire to do that. And aren't you grateful that though all of us in here are prone to wander, it's true what we sing, aren't you grateful that we serve a God who steadily and patiently reminds us like he is reminding us this morning, who draws our hearts back to him ever so gently and who is always ready to welcome a sinner who comes to him in humility and repentance. Aren't you grateful for the God that we serve and the Father who we love this morning? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we... We again tremble before you in your word this morning. You are high above us. And Father, we marvel every week at the fact that you, who are so majestic, so high and lifted up, you commit yourself to your people, to your children. You stoop low for us. You hear our prayers. You call us to come before you, to bring all of our life to you. And you tell us that you are worthy of our trust. Father, thank you for being worthy. Forgive us for the many times that we live, think, act, speak as if we didn't really believe that. Maybe not worthy. Maybe not entirely trustworthy as to his promises and his warnings. Father, forgive us for those failings. We thank you that by the food of your word, you continue to strengthen our faith to grow us in humble and settled dependence upon the finished work of Christ. Lord, help us to sense and to live out of the gratitude that flows from that so that in loving you and in our desire to love you more, we will love your people that you have put around us even as you have warned us elsewhere, he who, cannot, who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love his father whom he has not seen. Protect, lead, strengthen your people. And we thank you, Father, for your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.